The old pilot's plain tales. No highway in the sky. Just after the Second World War, 20th Century Fox brought out a movie with an attractive clutch of stars such as Jimmy Stewart, Marlena Dietrich and Jack Hawkins. The story, based on a Neville Shute novel, No Highway, involved a rather fancifully named airliner called the Rutland Reindeer. In the movie, disaster is avoided when James Stewart successfully prevents the aircraft from flying until he has proven that the design was flawed and that metal fatigue was going to bring it down. Three years later, fiction imitated fact by foretelling the disasters that were about to strike the fledgling British civil aviation industry. The technological advances made during the war were remarkable. The leap from slow and cumbersome biplanes to swept-winged jets had only taken a few years, and these advances had been made without the normal, careful, even laborious study, examination and experimentation that we are used to nowadays. In the immediate post-war period, the major aviation companies wanted to press their advantage and continue to stride ahead. The British government, as early as 1943, formed the Brabazon Committee to determine the UK's airliner needs after the war, and out of its recommendations came a design for a new jet airliner. It was seen as risky both in the terms of introducing untried design elements and for the financial commitment involved. Nevertheless, the British Overseas Airways Corporation found the specifications attractive and in December 1945, when a firm contract was laid out, they ordered 10 of the aircraft from the de Havilland Aircraft Company. Ronald Bishop, the designer of the Mosquito Bomber, led the design team. Various concepts were trialled, including a tailless version, but when BOAC and South African Airways asked for a larger 36-seat version, a more conventional 20-degree swept wing was used. It had unswept tail surfaces married to a wide fuselage allowing four-breast seating with a central aisle. The de Havilland Ghost engines were incorporated in pairs and buried into the wing route. The newly designed aircraft was named the DH-106 Comet. De Havilland knew that this aircraft was groundbreaking and they took enormous care with testing and development, particularly since some compromises had to be made. In order to keep the weight low enough to allow for the required high-level crews and endurance, the thin skin was composed of a new advanced alloy which was attached by a revolutionary technique involving both riveting and bonding the skin to its supports with a special adhesive. Several fuselage alloys were discarded as they proved to be vulnerable to weakening via metal fatigue and special techniques were developed to inspect the aircraft, including radiography examination of areas not easily accessible. The requirements of the time laid down by ICAO said that the pressurised fuselage should be designed to cope with twice the everyday operating pressure and be physically tested to a 33% overpressure. 
de Havilland went well over the regulations by designing his aircraft to two and a half times normal operating pressure and physically testing his fuselage to over a hundred percent of overpressure. Indeed, he performed this test around 30 times and then continued to test the fuselage over the normal pressure a further 2,000 times. After the aircraft was flying in service, when the regulations were amended, the company complied by further subjecting their test fuselage with another 16,000 normal pressure cycles, which was 60% more than the expected life of the aircraft. Some cracks appeared at the corners of the windows, but since the aircraft's expected life was only 10,000 cycles, this wasn't considered a problem. Many tests had been performed on the corners of the large square windows to ensure that the design was safe. The material used had twice the strength needed to cope with average conditions, the windows were tested under pressure to 12 psi, which was nearly 5 psi higher than the pressure expected at normal heights, and one window even survived to 100 psi, a 1,250% overpressure. The original Comet was about the same size as the first 737. It had 36 reclining slumber seats, with a 45-inch pitch. Large picture windows and table seatings for some passengers gave it an unrivaled feeling of comfort and luxury. The galley served hot food, it had a bar, and even separate ladies' and gents' toilets. Being the very first jet airliner, the flight was conducted above the turbulent weather, and for those passengers used to noisy turboprops, they found it smooth and quiet. The flight deck had a crew of four, two pilots, an engineer and a navigator, and several features were unique to civil aviation. It had irreversible flight controls, four hydraulic systems, and an impressive level of redundancy, such that all major systems could be run from a single engine. One of its competitors in the market, Sud Aviation, grafted the entire nose and cockpit layout of the Comet onto their aircraft, the Caravelle. The first production aircraft, nicknamed Yoke Peter after its registration, YP, first flew in January 1951. A year later, it took off with fair-paying passengers as the world's first jetliner. It was an enormous hit with the passengers, including Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother and Princess Margaret, who were guests on a special flight together with Sir Geoffrey and Lady de Havilland. The aircraft cruised about 50% faster than the DC-6, it had low maintenance costs and was very fuel efficient above 30,000 feet. Since it could be profitable with a load factor of only 43%, commercial success was almost certain. Orders were streaming in from Air India, Japan Airlines and many others. Even Pan Am and National Airlines had orders placed for the bigger better Comet 3 that was being planned. Then things started to go a bit wrong. 
The first hull loss came towards the end of 1952, when an aircraft departing from Rhone's Campino airport failed to get airborne and ran into rough ground at the end of the runway. There were only minor injuries, but then a second airframe, owned by Canadian Pacific Airways, did the same thing at Karachi, killing all on board. Both accidents were attributed to the pilots over-rotating on takeoff, stalling the thin high-speed wing, and also causing a drop of engine power through a lack of pressure recovery in the intakes. However, de Havilland redesigned the leading edges with a pronounced droop and wing fences to control span-wise flow. The events were fictionalised in the 1960 film The Cone of Silence. Then came more troubling losses. BOAC's Flight 783 got airborne from Calcutta, and six minutes later it crashed while penetrating a line of thunderstorms, killing all on board. Witnesses watched the wingless comet on fire plunge into a village. The breakup seemed to have started with the left elevator spar in the stabiliser. It was concluded that the aircraft may have been forced into a negative G manoeuvre in the severe turbulence, and the pilot, perhaps a little unused to the power of hydraulic controls, may then have overstressed the aircraft when pulling out. Following the inquiry's recommendations, future comets would have weather radar and a Q-feel system, giving an artificially generated control stick force that made them harder to move as the speed increased. Finally came the most damning crash of all. Twenty minutes after taking off from Rome, the site of the very first accident a year before, BOAC's Flight 781, in airframe Yoke Peter, was climbing out en route to London Heathrow. The crew were experienced and capable, and of the 29 passengers, 10 were children. The Comet's captain, Alan Gibson, was in the middle of a radio conversation with a slower Argonaut ahead of them about the weather. The last words of Captain Gibson in the old phonetic alphabet of the day were George Howjig, did you get my The transmission was abruptly cut off and soon afterwards fishermen saw wreckage falling from the sky. The entire comet fleet was immediately grounded. The aircraft came down near the island of Alba, but the task of discovering the cause of the disintegration was going to be a nightmare. In 1954, there were no flight data recorders or cockpit voice recorders, but bodies were recovered and attempts were made to salvage the aircraft. The process of recovering the wreckage was hampered by its great depth, but using new underwater TV cameras, eventually a lot of it was pieced together. Along with detailed post-mortems, it was established that there was a violent decompression but no explosion on board. Suspicion shifted to an uncontained engine disintegration, and modifications were quickly made to armour the engine turbine area. The possibility of a failure of the aircraft cabin was discounted due to the considerable strength it had displayed during testing. 
While the official investigation was still underway, BOAC were desperate to get the aircraft back into service, and on the 23rd of March they succeeded with the company chairman saying, We obviously wouldn't be flying the Comet with passengers if we weren't satisfied conditions were suitable. It didn't take long, however, for the next disaster to strike. The very next month, another BOAC Comet, operating a charter on behalf of South African Airways, en route from Cairo to Egypt, disappeared after only 33 minutes of flight. The aircraft plunged from 35,000 feet, killing all on board. In dismay, BOAC again grounded the fleet. The Prime Minister, Sir Winston Churchill, ordered a detailed inquiry. Sir Arnold Hall, a scientist from Cambridge University who headed the Royal Aircraft Establishment, was appointed to investigate the comet. What began was a groundbreaking examination that was to have repercussions throughout the airline industry for decades to come. The fuselage of Yoke Peter was painstakingly pieced together and forensically examined. The position of shreds of carpet, the imprint of a coin on a panel, and smears on scoring of paint from passenger seats began to tell the story. It started to look like it wasn't an engine failure, but a failure of the cabin roof. A window then smashed into the elevators, causing the rear fuselage to break away. The outer wing structure then failed and finally, as the cockpit parted company with the cabin area, fuel from the broken wings caught fire. In order to confirm their findings, an enormous water tank was built, one that could house a complete fuselage, and BOAC donated a new aircraft to be tested. The pressure of the water within the fuselage could be increased and decreased to simulate a pressurization cycle, and the experiment was run 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. To work through the entire life of the aircraft might have taken 5 months, but after the equivalent of only 3,000 flights, the engineers were able to establish the cause. The forward ADF window in the roof was where the failure began. The window was, in reality, the housing of an aerial for the automatic direction finder. It was only riveted, not glued as well, and the rivet holes had been punched instead of being drilled. Punch riveting left an imperfect hole that could give rise to tiny fractures in the metal which could then grow into cracks that eventually led to the fuselage failing. But what of the extensive testing previously done by the manufacturer? De Havilland tested portions of the fuselage structure initially to a significant overpressure, and when the strength had been proven, they then continued to cycle the pressure to simulate the life of the aircraft. Unbeknown to anyone in the industry at the time, the initial overpressure helped to strengthen the metal by a technique known as cold working. This prevented the stress fractures from occurring in the test subject. In addition, 
Little was known about the reaction of stress flow around abrupt corners in the comet square windows after cold working, which gave a completely false impression of the resistance to fatigue. With the causes finally established, de Havilland set about redesigning the comet. The Comet 1s were withdrawn and the newer Comet 2s successfully modified. The Comet 3 started flying initially unpressurised and finally a much improved Comet 4 was produced. However, the four-year gap between the inquiry and the resumption of passenger services proved to be an enormous problem. Whilst de Havilland was working to fix the Comet, the Boeing 707, the DC-8 and the VC-10 had all come onto the market in competition. What's more, the public findings of the inquiry ensured that no other manufacturer fell into the same trap. With its chequered past deterring customers, the Comet 4 only sold 90 aircraft. However, putting its troubled berth behind it, the aircraft served successfully for many years with some UK airlines and with the Royal Air Force. Indeed, the airframe was used as the basis for the very successful Nimrod Maritime Patrol aircraft that was built in five different variants. The real praise of this story, though, should be given to the groundbreaking investigation done by the Royal Aircraft Establishment. The Attorney General, Sir Lionel Heald QC, described it as one of the most remarkable pieces of scientific detective work ever done.